with you, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be in verses 18 through 25 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We are, of course, uh, still plowing through our Behold series. This is based on the, the belief uh, in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that it is as we are beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And so our, the, the, the thinking here is we, we might try to change ourselves, make ourselves better people, to even make ourselves uh, people who trust God more and rely on God more, obey God better. But we simply cannot do it unless we are astounded by this God, to see his trustworthiness, to see his faithfulness, to see the joy found in obeying him and his worthiness of our service. This week, um, I was studying this, and uh, we'll be looking at God's glorious wisdom. Last night, we looked at God's glorious knowledge, um, and it's very closely tied to wisdom. We'll be looking at God's glorious wisdom, and I, as I studied this, I, I came to realize, quite honestly, just how prideful I am. Now, in general, hopefully you guys don't think of this of me, but I don't think of myself as someone who just goes around boasting all the time. Look at what I have. Look what I can do. You know, that's not necessarily the type of pride I'm talking about. Uh, the, the pride that I began to see as I studied God wisdom uh, is much subtler, subtler than, than saying, look how great I am. But I don't think it's uh, really any less uh, blasphemous. <laughs> um, so so here, here's um, kind of the, the pride I came to, to realize that, that I have is, I think I'm more wise than God sometimes. There, I said it. I, I believe that I, Jeff, possess more wisdom than God at times. And again, you might say, are you crazy? You think that you are more wise than God? Well, let me just explain it to you like this. And maybe you've had this same, these same thoughts, these same feelings in your heart, and maybe you'll come to recognize it as proud as well. Maybe some bad, uncomfortable, inconvenient, interrupting circumstance happens in your life, and, and I say, we say, this is stupid. I can't believe this happened to me. This always happens to me. This doesn't make any sense why this would happen in my life. Who, who am I talking to at that point? I mean, I'm, to some degree, I'm just talking to myself, but we know that God is always listening. And I'm telling God, the God of the universe, this circumstance, this difficult circumstance, this interruption is stupid. This doesn't make any sense. And I may even at times, because I, I think theologically, and so I'm not stupid that I do realize, okay, this circumstance came into my life, therefore God allowed it and even uh, decreed that it would be a part of my life. I'm aware of that. And so I actually have, again, these, these are the proud thoughts I've got to uh, repent of, and that's part of what today will hopefully be, is I can think, I can't believe God would let this happen. Seriously, you know, something just horrific happens or, or just interrupting happens. And I say, doesn't God know how much better I would be able to serve him if, if this thing hadn't happened in my life? I could give you hundreds of examples of this, by the way. Uh, I will not. But, I mean, I, I seriously have, have, this, have this thought um, that, that I'm just like, this just doesn't make sense. And, and, and you know what? If I had control of the universe, if I were the one to be writing the story of Jeff, I'd write it differently and it would be better. That's, that's ultimately what it comes down to, ultimately what I think. And so when I say I believe I am more wise than God, I hope you understand I would never actually just like say that and be like, no, God got nothing on me, you know, it, but it is practical. It is in my heart and maybe it is in your heart as well. And so, I don't know what issues happen in your life. I don't know what interruptions happen in your life, what health issues, what job issues, what relational issues 
are there. What I hope to do today is to show you a God whose wisdom is big enough that we don't have to grumble, we don't have to complain, and we certainly don't say, I would have done things better were I God. First uh, Corinthians, we're picking up First Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is writing this letter to a group of Christians who, who felt that they were very wise. I mean, it, it'd be great to just really go through, dig in. They, they thought about gnosis, the knowledge that they had and the wisdom that they had. Uh, and, and anyways, philosophy, you know, the love for knowledge that they had. In fact, they, were, uh, they, they believed themselves to be so wise that they were very proud. <laughs> and this pride uh, was often causing a great deal of grumbling and complaining, a great deal of division and sin in the lives of the people. This is what was going on. And so Paul is writing to these people in this context who believe they have great wisdom and possibly even greater than God. Certainly, um, uh, some of the people that Paul mentions in this passage believe they have greater wisdom than God. And so Paul gives what I think is uh, one of the greatest speeches on the wisdom of God here. Uh, even if you just look at the uh, saturation, how many times the word wisdom is used in this passage as well as in uh, chapter 2, um, it's just in there a lot. And Paul is uh, showing the wisdom of God. He's showing uh, the, the supposed wisdom of people. And he compares and he contrasts that wisdom to see who comes out on top and if God is worthy to be trusted and if we are worthy or uh, if we should humble ourselves under the wisdom of God. And again, that is what I believe needs to happen more and more in my life as I see the wisdom of God is that I, I humble myself under the wisdom of God so that I don't grumble. I don't blaspheme him by thinking I could do better. So let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Paul says, For the word of the cross, that's talking about the cross of Jesus. Jesus was crucified on a cross for our sins. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Christ did not send me to be oh sorry, this verse 17. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discerning of the in the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's God's word. What a powerful way to end <laughs> uh, that, that little uh, passage on this comparison between the, the wisdom of men and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. On that note, let's lift our hearts in prayer to God. Father God, We today ask that you would show us your glory, specifically that you would show us the glory of your wisdom. Would you show us the depths of your wisdom? And then would you give us a mirror and remind us of our lacking wisdom, O oh God? And Lord, may this inspire great hope and joy and peace in our lives. May it inspire great obedience to your commands and obedience to sharing this gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. And God may, I mean, I ask it, I ask that I would never again blaspheme your name by, by believing I know better than you. 
a better plan for my life or for this church or for those around me. But God, I, I recognize that it will most likely be more of a process than I'd like, this sanctification from one degree of glory to another. So God, I, I ask at least that. Would you take me, would you take uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ from one degree of glory to another, that we would behold your wisdom and live in light of it. This I pray in your son's holy name. Amen. So, as I've sort of been doing in the past, I want to uh, kind of, to the best of my ability, just begin with God. And we'll, we'll, we'll look at the implications later of, of this wisdom. But I want to begin by just looking at what does Paul think about, what does really the whole Bible think about uh, God's wisdom? This is number one in your notes. God has infinite wisdom. I mean, I feel like I put that in every uh, sermon since we've been looking at the attributes of God. But God is infinite. Therefore, every attribute of God, he has infinitely. And so, while that word may not mean that much to you, infinite, endless, unmeasurable, if we actually think about it, if we actually set our minds uh, to, to, to behold this infinite wisdom, it can blow us away. In verse 25, again, uh, I mean, it's just my, my favorite verse in this passage, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. How much foolishness does God have in him? <laughs> None. And, and so again, this is, this is a figure of speech that Paul is using. This is actually much like uh, what God did last week in Isaiah 55. We, we were looking at the knowledge of God. Isaiah 55, 9 said, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so we said, well, how much higher are the heavens than the earth? And immeasurable, infinite, endless. There's a, a incredible, that there's, there's no even number we can put on, or he is this many times smarter and has more knowledge than me. No, it is infinite. There's an infinite gap between God's thoughts and ways and my thoughts and ways. And so that's, that's again, kind of the same thing Paul is doing here. The foolishness of God, if there were such a thing, even the foolishness of God would be wiser than anything men could come up with. And then we're not really looking at the strength of God this week, but and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is infinite wisdom <laughs> to say that a God who has no foolishness, if he did, it would still be wiser than men. What exactly is wisdom? I mean, it's, it's really a, a pretty hard word to define. It can be defined in many different ways. Um, but I think of, of wisdom as devising the best action for the greatest possible outcome. So you're in a situation or you foresee a situation coming and you devise the best action for the greatest possible outcome. Or to say it another way, planning the best path to the greatest possible destination. The best path to the greatest destination. So you have two things going on there. You have the ends, right? The outcome the destination, the ends, the goal, but then also the path or, or the actions to get to that ends. Both of those are wisdom. And so, again, I've been giving this uh, quite a bit of thought this week, and I've, I've changed my mind uh, a handful of times on what I think about this, but I've, I've kind of distilled it to two important elements or ingredients that I see make up a truly wise person. I would say the two ingredients are right knowledge and right desires. In order to be truly wise, one must have right knowledge, that is the right information, the right understanding, combined with right desires, that is the highest and most upright desires in our hearts that, that would lead to the greatest goal or outcome possible. 
So this has to do with our, our minds, speaking humanly, our, our minds as well as our hearts, because our hearts are the seat of our desires, our will, what we choose to do, and both must be present for full wisdom. So I'm going to just, again, I've kind of been doing this some in the past, but it's sometimes helpful to see um, where we land on this spectrum <laughs> to then be amazed by where God lands on this spectrum. So I'll first talk about humans. Again, Paul said, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. So evidently humans lack wisdom on our own. And so you think about it, okay, well, if wisdom is made up of knowledge, right knowledge and right desires, then it's really not that hard to see how we lack wisdom. You know, you can have <clears throat> really good desires for a good outcome, and yet because of your lack of knowledge, it's not a wise decision that you make. I'll give you a, a silly example. Um, one of my daughters hates bugs. The other one loves bugs. The older one loves bugs. So that's worms, ants, uh, you know, just any little creepy crawly she can get her fingers on. Um, but here's the thing. She, she loves those ants. She wants to take care of those ants. She wants to, to hang out those ants and worms for the rest of her life. But what she doesn't know is, where her knowledge is missing is, she doesn't know that it probably won't be best for that ant to, to pick it up by pinching it. And, and, and carrying it, you know, with you. Ah, I don't know if that's best. She, she, she has the heart there, but her knowledge is lacking. And kind of the same for worms. She doesn't know that, that removing them from, from the cool, moist soil and putting them in a cup out in the sun is probably not going to be best for those worms. All of these things, by the way, we're learning tragically one by one uh, <laughs> as, as the, the spring and the bugs start to come out and stuff. Um, so yeah, there, there's this desire. I, she loves these little critters, but the knowledge is missing. Now, uh, I mean, I could give many examples for, for adults. Once again, we could have good desires and uh, yet lack knowledge and, and not walk in wisdom. Um, my wife and I, we've been kind of redoing an old house, a 50s house. And so with houses like that, you have to think about the products that were put into them. At one point, it seemed like a great thing to put lead, this, this heavy metal, moldable heavy metal, in pretty much everything. At one point, it seemed like a great thing to have asbestos be insulation and a, and a textile uh, strengthener. That's, that's what asbestos is. And uh, like, that seemed like a great thing. This saved money. It made things stronger, last longer. Oh, but it also ruins you. <laughs> I think about... Uh, Coca-Cola. Does anyone know what the original ingredients were to Coca-Cola? Cocaine. This seemed like a good idea. Well, give people some sugar, some cocaine, and go enjoy yourselves. They've changed that since, by the way, so don't, you don't have to worry about it. Probably still not best for you, but my opinion. Uh, so you see these good desires, but lacking knowledge. Again, you could think of so many examples of that in our lives of just not knowing how people would respond, not knowing the future. Another example I'll just tell you that I had is it might, in, two, in the year 2000, it might have seemed wise to invest in Enron. Go ahead, put your kid's college fund in Enron when in 2001, it was bankrupt. It was the fastest growing, like most wealth producing in 2000, but then in 2001, they found out it was just a, a scandal. It was a scam. And so we, we don't have that knowledge like God has of the future and just of, of everything, the way it will respond to us. And, but then on the other hand, this one is probably uh, just as big, if not bigger, a problem is we often lack right desires. No. Yes. We often have the knowledge we need, but then lack right desires to do the right thing, our, our, our end goal is off, or even the means we use to get to that end goal is off. I mean, really, you think about many of the incredibly smart people we have in our world, rather than using their knowledge for good, use it for evil, to fulfill their, the evil desires of their heart. 
I mean, every child that, that, that knows, I don't even want to give children, uh, I don't want to give them food for thought. Smart kids can often get away with a lot. How about that? They, they use their intelligence to get away uh, with things and hide things from their parents. But again, the adult who has a knowledge of uh, a high knowledge of finances might know how to cheat on their taxes or how to just embezzle a little bit out of their company. The husband or wife that has a greater knowledge of their spouse can often use that knowledge as ammunition, evil ammunition in the midst of an argument. Now, I know none of you husbands or wives would do that, but... We might have the knowledge, but we lack right desires. And I would just go ahead and put a blanket statement out there. I mean, think about how often you know, okay, I, I, it's not right to lie, but then you lie anyway. Think of how often you say it's not right to, to covet that thing. It's in the Ten Commandments. And then we, we, we covet it. We desire it. We, we envy what other people have how many times do we know it's not right to set my eyes upon that thing? I know it's not. Then we go ahead and look anyway. We say, I know it's not right to slander other people, to talk bad about them behind their backs. And then we go ahead and do it anyway. Why? Because our desires were not right. We, we, we desire the, the, the little pleasure that comes from telling this little tidbit of information with our slander. We desire the little uh, thing of blast of hormones that happen when our eyes look upon things they should not and so on we we want our reputation better so we lie our, our desires are off and so we often walk in foolishness rather than wisdom but then we turn to god right we, we don't don't put god in that category <laughs> that is the worst possible thing we could do because it says right there the foolishness of God is wiser than men. So don't worry about God being like that. Don't worry about God being the way we are. God has infinite, perfect knowledge of everything that can be known. We saw that last week. That includes uh, just everything about everything, the, the intricacies, how they work, how things but also of the future, of what will happen. And God always has perfect desires. Therefore, God is infinitely and perfectly wise. Again, we, we can think about knowledge for a second. Is God going to, to make a plan or, or, or let something happen in your life and then say, oh, I didn't think of that. So again, just, we'll walk through this. God knows everything about everything in creation. Yes or no? Yes. God knows with precision everything that will come to pass. Yes or no? Yes. God even knows what would happen if a different path were pursued. Yes or no? I haven't actually shared that one with you. It's not a trick question. The answer is still yes. That God even knows what would happen if a different path were pursued. Remember the, the definition that I'm giving you is that the best possible path to the greatest possible destination. God's desires are there, and we know with his knowledge that he even knows what would happen if a different path were pursued. I can give you two examples of this very quickly. First Samuel chapter 23, verses 10 through 13. Um, David is in a, a bad situation. It says here, then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. So there's actually a lot here. Is um, David says, okay, if I stay here and, and the people protect me, 
God, God has let him know that the city will be destroyed on David's account. But then he says, okay, will the people give me up if I, you know, if I stay here? And God says, yes, they will give you up. They will hand you over to Saul. And so, the weird thing, though, is what God foretold would happen doesn't happen. But, but that's not what happened. God didn't foretell what would happen if they leave. God foretold what would happen if they stayed, if that alternate path were pursued. So God knew what would have certainly happened, even though it didn't actually happen. <laughs> that's crazy. See, another example, Matthew chapter 11, this is Jesus, verses 20 and 21. Could do a bigger section that shows more of this, but I just uh, zoom in on this. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Okay? So Tyre and Sidon, a city, these are cities that were destroyed for their godlessness. And he actually mentions Sodom. You remember Sodom? Sodom and Gomorrah? Fire coming down from heaven. That's in verse 23. He says, if, if I had been in those cities and I had done these mighty works in them, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But here's the interesting thing. That's not what happened. Those cities were all destroyed. Why? Because Jesus wasn't there, but he's telling them what would have certainly have happened even though it didn't actually happen. God knows exactly what would happen, even if any different path were pursued. This is the infinite knowledge of God. I find this just to be incredible. When you think about the wisdom of God and everything that happens in this world, God knows even every possible thing that could happen in this world. You think, you think about the variations there? Again, just the, the almost 8 billion people that exist on this earth right now, and that's just humans, everything else. God knowing these different paths that could have been taken, what would happen if they did, but full knowledge of what will happen and what will take place. But then we think about right desires. Is God, you know, super, super smart, all this knowledge but then only going to use his knowledge for, for shrewd and deceitful ways. Again, the smarter the child, the, the better they get away with their sin. Maybe the, the smarter the adult, the more they're able to, to cheat on things or whatever. Does God do that? Is God, does God have right knowledge and then his, his fleshly desires overpower his will like us? We might have perfectly right knowledge, but then we say, mm, I want to do this instead our heart it's our desires does god have that problem we did see this uh the first week um looking at attributes but god is the infinitely good standard he he, he stands alone as holy and pure and righteous all together god is morally perfect in every way and in everything that he does Psalm 119.68, you are good and do good. That's, that's two separate things. You, God, are good, and everything that you do is good. Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all. Mark 10.18, no one is good except God alone. God alone carries the distinction of, of perfect moral goodness and rightness. There is no hint of bad or evil in God. 1 John 1, 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I think about us of how we, we might have good desires, but the world and these pressures creep in. They, they, don't, they don't press in on God. There is no darkness in him at all. And he is not even tempted to do evil. I mean, just get this. He has his heart so right and so pure and he is the standard he is unchangeable he sees things so perfectly that god cannot be tempted with evil james 1 13 god cannot be tempted with evil and he himself 
tempts no one. Therefore, God being infinite in knowledge and perfect in desires is by nature infinite in wisdom. Therefore, everything he plans is always perfectly wise. Everything he allows to happen is always perfectly wise. Every situation, every circumstance that has ever occurred in, in, in all of creation history is all a part of his infinitely wise plan. And that, my friends, includes every circumstance, every situation, every difficulty you and I may face. And I believe that Paul sort of makes an argument here from, from the greater to the lesser, okay? An argument from the greater to the lesser goes like this. If, if God, and we'll use wisdom, if God is wise in this most important, most complex, most complicated issue, then you can trust he will be wise in all these far lesser issues areas, far less complicated situations. And I would say even on the other hand, you have, if men are foolish in this most important issue, then you can know they are likely foolish in many lesser issues as well. And so we see number two in, in, in your notes, or if you're writing things down, God displayed wisdom on the cross. And this is, this is the greater, okay? This is the argument of God's wisdom on the cross and if we see that it should make us recognize that God's wisdom is perfect and infinite in all the lesser circumstances of life verse 18 said the word of the cross is folly that is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God verse 22 through 24, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we have what people are saying, you have these two dominant groups, by the way, are being listed here uh, in that day. Oddly enough, the Greeks weren't even in power. The Romans were in power, but the Greeks had, or sorry, but the Romans had taken on Greek culture anyways, <laughs> Hellenization. Uh, and so what, what Greeks did, the, the elite of the Greeks, is they sought wisdom. They philosophized, if that's a word. And you, you can see this like in Acts, in Acts chapter 17 at the Areopagus. They're, they're standing there just talking. They like to have new ideas, new thoughts. They sought wisdom. Then on the other hand, you have Jews. Jews would be uh, the, the religious elites. That's specifically who this is talking about is the, the religious elites. And they were supposed to be the ones who, they had the knowledge of God. Knowledge of Yahweh, the scribe, uh, Paul mentioned earlier uh, in the passage. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? So again, the scribe would be the person who knows everything about the Bible. Then the debater would be the Greek who has, uh, you know, all this knowledge, all this wisdom, all this rhetoric. And these people, the most wise by worldly standards, and both in uh, just uh, knowledge, philosophy, and in religion... Both call the cross folly, foolishness. Interesting. Interesting. They're, they're warring, actively warring against this wisdom of God in the cross. Again, actively warring, like arresting Paul, putting him in prison, arresting all these other Christians, putting them in prison because they are spreading the knowledge, this foolishness of the cross. But you know what? This, this has been going on <clears throat> right since very near the beginning. I'm, I'm going to call this a wisdom war, okay? There's a wisdom war going on here in 1 Corinthians that Paul is describing. But there has been a wisdom war going on in our Bibles ever since Genesis chapter 3. Turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 if you would with me. 
Shouldn't be too hard to find. First book of the Bible. Genesis 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent, we understand this serpent to be under the leading of, of the devil, under the leading of Satan. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see that word crafty? Now the serpent was more crafty. So he's got lots of knowledge. Friends, Satan has lots of knowledge, but he doesn't have right desires. Therefore, he is not wise. He is, he is shrewd. He is conniving. He is, the word there, crafty. He knows how to manipulate things. The problem is he manipulates things to the wrong ends using the wrong means. And so he gets the woman to be questioning God. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then we see, pick up there in verse 6. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So here we see in Genesis 3, we see Satan, this uh, demonic force, angelic, but turned <laughs> demon by our thinking, force who is raging against, warring against the wisdom of God. And then now we see Eve take the bait, and Adam follow behind her. It says, she saw that the tree, the fruit of the tree, was to be desired to make one wise. She believed there was a wisdom outside of the wisdom God was already giving them that would be better. That they could choose their own path in life. That they could write their own story. The knowledge of good and evil. We'll know what path we want to take. We'll know what is right and wrong. And we won't need God to tell us. And maybe ours will be an improvement on his. And they certainly believe that because she takes it and eats. Then she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And that war has been raging We'll get to it in a moment, but Genesis 3.15, God promises that there will be a Savior. This is in that same chapter, that there will be a Savior, one who will deal with Satan, but that Satan will hurt him. And so, the, all, the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the New Testament is Satan raging against this plan of God to defeat him and to make salvation for sin and you know, forgiveness from sin and, and being reunited with God, able to worship God again. And so Satan, all through the Bible, is using his wisdom to try to thwart the wisdom of God. And so that's why I say it's a wisdom war. And we see that coming out here even after the cross uh, with the, the, the Jews and the Greeks. This is folly to them. Folly to them. But I want to think about this in our, in our, our own lives because I want to look at the Jews. I want to look at the Greeks, what it was about God's wisdom that they thought was so foolish and see if that is at all true in our lives. So the Jews, these <clears throat> religious elites, they knew the Bible. They knew what God had promised uh, would happen, at least partially. Yet most of them rejected the Savior most of them rejected this, this fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 that they had been long awaiting, supposedly. He says there, Jews demand signs. The, the, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And then verse 22, the Jews demand signs. The reason that, that, that the Jews did not find Jesus to be a wise decision, trusting, following, becoming his disciple, is that he did not perform the sort of signs they wanted. And you say, well, signs, didn't Jesus do a lot of miracles? Yes. Yes, he did. And they were like afraid that more people would hear about 
the sign miracles that he was doing, because surely this one had to be from God. But the problem that they were seeing and then the signs that they were demanding were signs that should accompany a king. Okay, they wanted a king. They were under Roman oppression, Roman rule. And they, by the way, had been passed around from one oppressor to another for a large part of their history. And they had been promised a king who would free them from uh, the oppression, who would uh, lead them and, and, and reign over them in righteousness. And so they thought the signs that they would demand is what should accompany a king. One who would save them from this oppression and make them into a mighty nation once again. So Jesus didn't fit their paradigm of wisdom and glory because Jesus said things like, my kingdom is not of this world. He came as a servant, one who, who served people, a person who went to the places kings don't go, to the, to the brothels, to, 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 the, to the sinners, they called them. And so they literally crucified this Jesus and, and above him was placed a sign that said king of the Jews a crucified king is also not what they had in mind right he comes in the triumphal procession so there's some hope then he's crucified okay that's foolishness I'm not going to follow a king who died that's not very impressive that's not a victor king so it was foolishness to them well, let me transition that to, to our own lives. I wonder how many of us stumble over the fact that, that our existence, our experience right here, right now, doesn't quite feel like the kingdom of God. I wonder how many of us stumble over the fact that our circumstances remain difficult even though we've trusted in Christ. Relationships remain strained, health fails us, our bodies break down. And we say, I can't believe that I'm still having to mess with all this stuff. I've been saved. This isn't the type of Christianity I wanted. And by the way, there is an alternative Christianity out there, but it won't save you, called the prosperity gospel, where you're promised health, wealth, and prosperity. If you trust in Jesus, then the kingdom will come on you right here, right now. And guess what? In droves, people walk away disillusioned with the gospel because it does not give what it promises. Just, be, just trusting in Jesus right here, right now. I mean, we are a part of a kingdom, by the way. I'm not trying to take that away, but it is not an earthly, visible kingdom in the way that we might think and I wonder, I wonder how many of us have stumbled over that. I wonder how many of us think, man, God must be lacking in wisdom because this isn't very cool to be a Christian. It's not easy to be a Christian all the time. Okay, so that's the Jews. The Greeks, on the other hand, it says, seek wisdom. Well, that's kind of what we're talking about. So, it says... But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. So the, the Greeks seek wisdom, this philosophy, love of knowledge. Therefore, the cross is folly to them. So by this wisdom, what, what they're talking about, and what we, we see with uh, Greek philosophy and Greek wisdom, is, is really just human musings, human opinions when i say music you know they think about trying to figure things out and one of the the greatest that they thought one of the greatest revelations they had made was that matter flesh things that that are have matter i don't know how to say that a different way <laughs> real things that you can see are are evil and bad well because you know we we feel pain we we have emotions in our body that are hard and we have all these things. so matter material things were, were evil to them what was good for uh, the greek philosopher was spirit that the spirit world where there is no flesh encumbering you and and so it came to 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 most philosophers of this day uh, they came to believe that that flesh our, our our fleshly existence material existence is the enemy 
They saw the pain. They saw the burden, the, the, the futility of, of living in the flesh. They saw the monotonous, monotonousness of living in the flesh. And so, these Greeks who like to be astounded, they'd hear about Jesus, this religious leader being put to death on a cross. They weren't impressed. This wasn't the type of knowledge that they loved. Why? Well, for one, again, they believed in the spiritual, the higher plane of existence as, as the higher and better utopia they're searching for. But Jesus claims to be deity, but he's a man. And material is bad, so this isn't impressive. Not only that, but Jesus dies, okay? Again, not very impressive, but probably the worst, and I actually get this from Acts 17, what they hated the most about Christian wisdom is that there was a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was anathema to them. You've finally been released from your material existence, your fleshly existence, and for the leader of this religious movement who, who claims to be God to then again rise from the dead and carry on in a fleshly body, that, that, was, that was despicable to them. How, how could you think of, uh, of wanting to worship a God, worship a Savior who's, who's fleshly and is now in an eternal flesh? That, that is, by the way, Acts 17, 32 um, I'm not going to read that whole passage, but he's talking to people at the, the, the Greek Areopagus. This is the place they, they philosophize, talk about wisdom. Paul goes there, and they, they listen to Paul. They're interested in what Paul says until he mentions the resurrection. It says, and then they mocked him. Some continued to listen to him and said, we'll, we'll hear you again. But most just mocked him when he mentioned the resurrection. This was foolishness to them, this material existence full of responsibilities and and weights and encumbrances and again i want to turn this back on 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 me and on on you i wonder how many of us are are, are frustrated at the lack of of the flash and the lack of ex, <clears throat> excitement and emotion in the christian life i wonder how many of us are frustrated by the fact that we still have to carry responsibilities obligations. I want, I want to tell you this. James 5, again, I'm not going to read it, but he talks about patiently waiting for the second coming of Christ. He says, yeah, we should, we should <clears throat> wait for the Lord as a farmer who plants seeds, then awaits the, late, uh, the early and late rains until finally that, that fruit grows but but during that time it says <clears throat> he has to be patient we, we await the lord patiently and part of being patient is is tending those seeds working the fields that doesn't sound super exciting to me <laughs> i don't know like I, I maybe i just never done a whole lot of farming but like waiting for seeds to grow sounds about like waiting for paint to dry but that's what James says that it would be a wise way to live, to wait patiently, tending. And you know what I think um, can be our motivation for that? 1 Corinthians 1, 9, this is the, the chapter we're already in, but just going back to, to 1, 9. No, not 1, 9. Where is it? I wrote one nine in my notes. I want to. I want to let you know what it is, though. Oh, here we go. Just two nine. So two nine. First Corinthians two nine says, "But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him." There will be a day, by the way, when this kingdom comes, new heaven, new earth, and this is a part of God's wisdom. There will be a day when life. Is, is more flashy, exciting, and emotional than you can handle. I'm telling you, I think um, God is going to break us for eternity with, with jubilance, with excitement as we behold His glory. But in the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, we must wait 
We must be patient. We must seek his glory now. Seek to let his glory be known. And you say, but I don't like that plan. I, I, I don't like it. Well, look at the cross. Look at his plan. Satan, by the way, thought that, that the cross was a good thing for him. Right? He thought it was wise. Um, see here. Uh, Luke 22, 3 through 4. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Judas then went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. Satan thought that the cross, betraying Jesus, getting him crucified, Judas betraying Jesus and getting him crucified, would, would be a wise plan for him. <clears throat> this wisdom war that was going on, he thought, he was winning it. I've, I've, I've recognized who the Savior is, and I'm going to extinguish him. And yet, we know that it was actually the wisdom of God that Jesus, as Acts uh, 2.23, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's, that's the wisdom of God, the plan, right, to the greatest ends using the greatest path. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what looks to humans, what looked to Satan as the most foolish moment of God, was actually God's greatest moment of displaying his wisdom. You remember, again, Satan was crafty. He, his, his whole desire is to undercut the glory of God and, and undercut humans' experience and relationship and enjoyment in God. And the woman gave in and the man gave in and we've inherited that, but God now reveals to us wisdom and salvation. And that becomes... This is verse 18, 118, 1 Corinthians 118. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. And by the way, verse 17, he said, I, I preached only the cross. I didn't come to you with wisdom or eloquent, eloquent speech, but only preaching the cross. So through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what Satan thought would be his greatest moment of triumph and victory over Christ was the death nail and his defeat. Genesis 3.15 God had made a promise. This was at the beginning of the worship war. <clears throat> or sorry, not worship, wisdom war. Genesis 3.15. This is God speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his head heal. This was the wisdom of God from the beginning of time. That, that Satan would bruise the heel of the Savior. Think about it, a serpent. A serpent crafty, lying in the weeds, and then at the right moment. But in God's wisdom, at when, when Satan was striking, Jesus was crushing. With the same heel that was being bitten, the cross, Christ was crushing bruising the head of Satan, a mortal wound. This is the wisdom of God. What seemed foolish to, uh, to Satan, seemed foolish to the Jews, foolish to the Greeks. This is actually the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so again, I think about this for my own life. The most wise people, I mean literally the most wise uh, creature outside of God, Satan, that he was more crafty than any other, it said there. He believed God was foolish in the way he was doing things. Then you have the Jews, the religious elites, they believed God <clears throat> was foolish in what he was doing. Then you have the Greeks, the, the philosophizers, the, the, those who love knowledge, they believe God is foolish 
Yet in that moment, God shows the full power of his wisdom. That is my salvation. That is your salvation. That Christ went to that cross in mortal flesh. That he did take our sins upon him. God turns his back on the son, what we deserved. But in that same moment, that's what made the veil tear, right? Our access to God, the veil to the Holy of Holies, our access to God made. And then three days later, the resurrection, showing the resurrection, we would one day enjoy with him for eternity. This was the wisdom of God. Therefore, argument from the greater to the lesser, therefore you can trust God with the difficulties in your life. The cross was gruesome, but it was God's wisdom. The highest, greatest uh, ends using the highest possible means. That is what the cross was. Therefore, every gruesome, every difficult, every, every interrupting, frustrating moment in your life that you feel is actually the wisdom of God being worked out. If he did it with the cross, he can do it with your life. He can do it with my life. And the knowledge of this, this high wisdom should first lead us to worship. Paul says this in, in uh, Romans, I think it's uh, 11. He says, 1133, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. That, that is humble worship under the wisdom of God. Oh, the depths of the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. What does that mean? It means... There's no reason to like second guess what God did. Was this really best for my life that God allowed this to happen? It's unsearchable. Don't even worry about it. He was wise. His wisdom. How inscrutable his ways. That means we, we can't scrutinize. We can't say, no, 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 you didn't do that right. This should lead to humble worship in our life, which I believe then leads to patient endurance in our life, right? We trust this is on me because God is allowing it in his wisdom. Which then, I believe, leads us to humbly sharing the gospel. Again, all through that passage there in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about preaching the folly of this cross. And while it will be foolishness to many, it will be the power of God and the wisdom of God to those who are called, to those who believe in Jesus' name. So I want to... Put, put a call out to you now. Any of you who have, who have looked upon religion, Christianity, this is silly. This is just a cultural thing that we just do, but it's not real. To see the wisdom of God, the reality of God. Don't follow Satan's path. He's trying to fool you. And his wisdom is truly foolishness because... The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. So I'm, I'm, I'm telling you now, look to God, look to his wisdom and trust in him. Throw your earthly wisdom to the side and say, I got to cling to Christ. He is my wisdom. And then again, for, for people like me that, that struggle with life's trials, Let's first repent of our pride. It's pride to say, I know better than God. I would have done it differently. I would have done it uh, in a more smooth path. Let's repent of that, and then let's joyfully accept that the all-wise God loves us, knows us, and is directing our lives. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you just keep on adding glory upon glory upon glory as we behold you. Even today, I went long on my sermon, but God, it still wasn't enough. There's so much more to see of your wisdom, your plan unfolding throughout human history and redemption history. And Lord, we are just so thankful, those of us who have trusted in your son, that that plan included us in your wisdom. God, you included 
foolish, rebellious people like me in your salvation plan. And God, you included all of us in multiple ways. You included us that you would bring us in and save us. But then it was also wise to you that you would use us. That we foolish vessels would now carry this message of an all-wise God who made a perfect salvation through Jesus Christ. God, help us to worship you. Help us to humble ourselves under you and help us to share you with anyone who will listen. I pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.